Broadcasting from Manhattan Beach and the World Wide Web, you're listening to CHSRHealthyLife.net. As a service to our listeners, this program is for general information and entertainment purposes only. CHSRHealthyLife.net does not recommend, endorse, or object to the views, products, or topics expressed or discussed by show hosts or their guests. We suggest you always consult with your own personal, medical, financial, or legal advisor. Everybody. Welcome to Marianne Live. This is Marianne Camarado. I'm so glad you're here today. I was just listening to the intro, you know, the little thing that plays if you're listening live right before we come on the air. And I was thinking, wow, who, who are these people who have medical, legal, financial, all these advisors? <laughs> oh, wow. And then they forgot spiritual. <laughs> I don't know. If you're me, that would be somebody on my list if I had my dream team together. Anyway, yeah, we have a lot of people that we advise about what we do in the world, don't we? We don't often or always make independent decisions about things. And and then there's this little factor of there's always a risk involved huh? in any decision and any choice we make, including picking our advisors, by the way. Can we trust them? Should we trust them? Um, you know, the, the idea of risk is a vast conversation and one that I have to say in my 10 years haven't heard any of my authors talk about this yet. And so today we are in for an extra big treat. Kate Sakel is joining us this hour talking with us about this very thing. The Art of Risk, in fact, is the title of her new book, The New Science of Courage, Caution, and Chance. Kate's going to be with us this hour uh, but before we get to Kate, and for those of you who uh, join us again and again, and we're so glad you're here, um, we're going to do what we do at the top of every hour. Uh, for those of you just joining us for the first time, just start to turn your attention inwards. What we like to do is to cultivate presence. It's a very simple thing, and it's not always something we remember to do. I certainly forget all day long. So having a moment to just turn our attention inwards, the way I like to do that is to find the breath in the body. Where is your breath? How is it breathing you? And just notice that. Uh, this one small act of becoming present allows us, in this case, to receive Kate Sattel's presence with an S that she has for us this hour. So just notice your breath. Where is it? Is it in your belly? Is your attention shifting the way that you are breathing? And there's nothing really to do about it except just come back into your body. If you're already there, yay. I'm clapping without making sound, like the tree that falls in the woods. <laughs> no one hears, right? Having that embodied presence is wonderful. It's beautiful. For the rest of you who are just getting here, you're just arriving, just take another moment and maybe... Give yourself an audible breath, listening to your sound. How often do we really do that with presence and consciousness? Such a small thing, it can change your physiology in just a moment. Then the next thing we like to do, by the way, this is one of the practices we do on the program. We do three every hour, uh, once a week, because we think that the way to stay awake is to practice. I don't know, some really famous guys have said that, some women who are masters. I don't know, we think that it might work uh, having a practice. So 
see if it works for you. If you're already a believer, here we go to our next practice, which is cultivating an attitude of gratitude. One of the ways that I, I know I can hear the groans. Look, at it is not easy to get grateful today, especially if you're in the United States and you're in the midst of all this political hoo-ha that every time you turn on anything, you're terrified at the prospect of what's coming in November. Uh, among other things, our families, our children, parents, being parents, illness, uh, our financial situation, and, and all of it, by the way, I'm going to wrap it up in a risk bow today. What are we risking by making choices or not, on the other hand? Well, let's get grateful first so we can really take a look at that. And one of the things I like to do is to think about who helped make it possible for me to do what I'm doing today. So I ask you the same question. Who helped make it possible for you to do what you're doing right now or have already done today? You know, the electronic device that you're using. How many tens of hundreds of thousands of people were involved in helping you do that? Very simple thing, the one that we often take for granted. Or what about the clothes you have on? Who made those clothes? Who are the lives of the people that have touched you? All the, the myriad of things that uh, support us doing what we do in and out. Or just pick, go down your list. Our list here at Marion Live, while you're doing that, um, is highlighted by our, by our honorary sponsor, the One World Children's Fund.org, if you're online. Uh, uniting people to improve the lives of children affected by poverty. Uh, we love those folks. We're so grateful to have them as our honorary sponsor. And they're at the global level. At the national level, we are supported by the National Action Organization committed to changing the way our culture values each other. Yeah, really, that, let's hear that again. The, the way our culture values each other. How do we value each other? Well, the National Action Organization thinks programs like this are important to help you, for one thing, put only good things in your mind. We get to choose what kind of media uh, that we listen to and how it helps us um, move through the world, how, how it helps us shape who we're being. So we're so grateful. 100% of the proceeds goes to programming just like this. And at the local level, one of my favorite sponsors as well is uh, the Open Secret Bookstore in San Rafael, California. They've got the latest in meditation and revelation. Now, you might find a book like this front and center uh, the uh, Kate Sukel's new book, The Art of Risk. I think I saw it there. If it's not there, I, I made it up, but it will be there soon if it's not already. We know it's uh, available wherever fine books are sold. So here's the thing. We're breathing. We're present. We're trying to get there. We're grateful. or trying to get there. And now we're going to talk to you a little bit about uh, our guest today, who we're so grateful to uh, have her joining us this hour. She's going to teach us. Oh, yeah. She's going to teach us about all kinds of things related to risk, the neurobiological aspects, how it affects the different quadrants or areas of our lives, what it is in general. But let me tell you a little bit about our author today, Kate Sukel, who's joining us. She earned a BS in cognitive psychology from Carnegie Mellon University and an MS in engineering psychology from the Georgia Institute of Technology. She's a passionate traveler and a science writer. Her work was, uh, has appeared in the Atlantic Monthly, New Scientist, USA Today, The Washington Post, Islands, oh, I want to hear about that, Parenting, Bark, American Baby, and AARP the Bulletin. Um, she's a partner at the award-winning family travel website, Travel Savvy Mom. Oh, I love that site. So many folks uh, are getting on board on that site, very popular, and is also a frequent contributor to the Dana Foundation's 
many science publications. So that's at Dana.org if you're interested. And she's the author of This Is Your Brain on Sex. I know a lot of folks have read this book as well, and The Science Behind the Search for Love. All right, she's going to be with us in just a second talking about this. What risks do you take and why? Are risk takers born or made? Kate Sakel uses cutting-edge research to illustrate which parts of the brain drive behavior, the different genes and the neurochemicals at play, and the particular blend of biology and experience held within that allows us to know what risks are worth taking and what risks should be left alone. And she's joining us right now. Welcome to the program, Kate. How are you? I am well. Thanks so much for having me. Apparently my dog wants to say welcome, too. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. Dogs are just tuned in, and yes. uh, we're going to get to animals and risk later. <laughs> right now, yeah, let's talk a little bit about uh, how you characterize risk, the definition that you're using, and then we'll launch off from there, Kate. Sure. So I think, you know, before I define it, we need to talk about the fact that we talk about risk in extremes quite a bit. So, you know, it's, it's either the thing that is going to kill us, bankrupt us, ruin our lives. But then when we stop, take a step back and think about it, all of our favorite success stories, we think of those people as risk takers. It's, it, you know, the Steve Jobs of the world, the Mahatma Gandhis of the world. These people didn't get to where they were. They didn't accomplish what they did unless they took big risks. So we also throw around things like, you know, he who dares wins, uh, high risk, high reward. So we really talk about it in extremes. It's, it's almost a really bipolar concept. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we get into trouble because, as it turns out, risk, it, it's not so much a personality trait. What it is, it's a cognitive process, and it's part and parcel of every decision we make every day. And we're just not really aware of it. Um, so much about being a good risk taker comes down to awareness, and it means that there's going to be a risk involved in, you know, whether or not you take a new job or you decide to play at a final poker table, but also whether or not you have that third cup of coffee in the morning, knowing that it might make you a little antsy, you know, come 2 or 3 p.m. Mm-hmm. Um, so really all risk boils down to is a decision where the outcome is uncertain and potentially negative. And, of course, the other side of that coin is that means that there's an uncertain outcome that could also be potentially positive. Right. And it is a real sort of important aspect of, of learning, of skill building, um, and, you know, really just finding your place, thinking up your, yourself and the world around you. Mm-hmm. One of the things I thought was interesting when I was reading your book is you talk about how the way we characterize risk or even are oriented as individuals and a culture um, has changed over the last couple of decades, right? Oh, definitely. I, I mean, the thing is, you know, back in the day, things like extreme sports, and they really become part of the mainstream. Uh, worldwide travel, you know, as technology has advanced, as, you know, these different things have come about, so have opportunities to... Uh, you know, maybe break some ankles here and there, um, but also to get out of our comfort zones and, and really push our own boundaries and, and learn quite a bit in the process. So it, I think that the way that we've traditionally talked about risk, and this is both in the real world and in the science world, has been constrained by what was out there in the past. And, of course, every day new and different opportunities are opening themselves up for us. And a lot of the times we, we're just really not cognizant of that, and we're not really cognizant of just how critical 
risk is to, to just everyday decision making. Well, let's t- use some examples of the past. An individual, let's say, in the 50s or 60s and their orientation to risk versus someone today. Give an example of how that might look. So I think the, you know, the really standout example is just women. In the 1950s, you know, World War II was over. We were supposed to go back home to the kitchens, have, get married, have babies, raise those babies. We weren't supposed to be working, although a lot of women certainly did, but they were kind of frowned on for doing it. If they were working, they certainly weren't supposed to be doing that in the boardroom or in on, you know, the operating room or all these places that were really sort of limited to men. Um, and it's it, there's kind of this idea that women are not natural risk takers. Men are. Women aren't because of our biological natures, but what we're finding is that as opportunities are expanding, as we do have more control um, over our lives and over our careers and and have greater ambitions, there are a lot more opportunities and a lot more opportunities uh, to risk and and to grow. Yeah. Would you say that the the anthropologists uh, looking at this issue might look at this in evolutionary terms or socially. Like, how would how would one uh, add those folks? Because I know you've you've looked at the economic, uh, psychological, and the biological components. But what do we think about evolution here or anthropology in general? So, you know, actually, a lot of the genetic work these days is actually being done by cultural anthropologists because they want to see, you know, how sort of these genes that may have evolved for, for one type of purpose, you know, what what our lives might have looked like before we got iPhones and lived in skyscrapers and, you know, yeah. lived in these huge cities when we were more hunter-gatherers, more, you know, sort of nomadic, you know, how they they work now. Um, But I think in terms, if we're talking about the gender divide when it comes to risk-taking, you know, the evolutionary argument has always been that men would be bigger risk-takers because they have so much sperm. You know, so men have billions and billions of sperm. Women, we we are limited to about 300 eggs, give or take. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that when you have that much sperm, you need to get out in the world. You have to push your boundaries so you can spread it around, so you can have the the highest possible number of healthy offspring. When you have 300 eggs, right? You got to keep it. You got to play it close to the vest because not only are you have limited opportunities to reproduce, but it is such a huge commitment in terms of time and resources to actually raise a child. So the idea that women would stay closer to home, they'd be more protective, they'd be more risk averse, is because you know they have sort of uh, you know limited eggs and they need to protect them. And it's an interesting argument, um, but I think it's probably something that might have been more um, applicable uh, a few thousand years ago. Yeah, and propagated (laughs) since then by, uh, I think, the patriarchy. It seems like a really convenient propaganda. I don't know. Just, you know. know. (laughs) King of Siam and his proverbial bumblebee, you know, going from flower to flower. And, you know, you could make the argument that now that, you know, there is help, you know, birth control available and women have more reproductive freedom and, and choices, you know, that maybe it's, it's different. There isn't that kind of biological drive to stay safe. Um, but the thing is, when we think about that evolutionary argument for risk-taking, the idea is that males had to go forward. It's usually actually the larger of the species. There are some animal species where the women are considered the risk-takers because they're the larger of the species and they, ha- they tend to be the hunters or um, tend to be the, the ones that, that kind of get out in the world. Um, but they need to expand their territory so they can find food, so they can avoid predators, so that they can, you know, propagate the species. Yeah, 
these are interesting arguments, and you're right. They sort of they're historical or antiquated in some ways. Yet they also, you know, you you talk about this in your book a little bit or allude to it. It lives in the oldest part of our brain. However, we got the new frontal cortex, and I I don't know. I wanted to create a T-shirt recently that said, excuse me, can I massage your frontal lobe? Like, <laughs> we really need to make that connection, uh, a clean connection. We're not there yet. Maybe evolution is going to help us with that. So let's, for the purposes of writing this book, you said uh, you, this book was about you wanting to better understand what risks, what risks are worth taking, and to do so, uh, we should focus on the facts. So just as a broad stroke here, this is a scientific look at risk and, and, and all of the areas we've mentioned already. But so let's define risks for fo- risk for folk as an operating sort of premise, and then let's move mm-hmm. forward into the different domains. How about that? So, you know, it goes back, again, to that simple decision, any decision you make that has an uncertain outcome, and that really is every single decision you make. Because even if we talk about, you know, death and taxes being certain, uh, you don't know how you're going to die or when you're going to die, and I'll be damned if I even know how much I owe Uncle Sam every year. It always changes. I can't keep up with the tax code. I don't even think the IRS can. So nothing really is certain. But I think, you know, from from my perspective of looking at the facts and looking at wanting to look at this from a neuroscientific lens, you know, we do have these amazing brains. You know, we have basically three pounds of silly putty in our skulls that's directing every thought, every emotion, every action. Um, And if you kind of go back and and you think about, if you were to distill down the brain's job to one thing, it is to try to predict what's coming next in the world so that you can survive and or thrive. But there's so much going on. There's so much bombarding our senses from, you know, millisecond to millisecond. The brain has to prioritize. It has to figure out what's important and what's not. It's trying to fill in the blanks and make things as certain as possible. And that's where we get tripped up because we like to think of ourselves as as being rational and, you know, our gut feelings are leading us in the right direction. But our brains can only sort of fill in those blanks if they have good information. Um, And that's that's kind of the tricky part. So when there is uncertainty in a decision and the brain is working so hard to try to fill in as many blanks as possible and sort of wait this calculation out, what is it trying to do? Where is it pulling from? What is it, you know, relying on more than something else? How does that change when we're emotional or stressed out or, or not centered? And, you know, understanding those things can help us better make, you know, better decisions in the exactly. future. Exactly. Now, earlier you said, um, you know, basically not all brains are created equal. I'm paraphrasing, but basically are some people naturally born risk takers or not, right? So... No is your answer, but but how do we um, understand our what you call risk circuitry? So, uh, you know, the thing is, I wouldn't say that there aren't natural-born risk-takers, but I think that it's not just biology. So there's also huge environmental components. So in our brains, we sort of have these two areas that are always kind of duking it out when it comes time to make a risky decision. We have this more primal, um, evolutionarily preserved area called the and you can, uh, and you know, this is kind of our motivation center. But that's always, you know, in, in, in flux with our brain's frontal lobes, which is a decision maker. Beautiful. I'm going to just interrupt you right there. We're going to go to break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about basil. No, not the kind we're going to make pesto with. Basil ganglia, <laughs> the kind that's in our brain that's important to understand. Yeah, we're going to all do our best because. You know, we're just scratching the surface when it comes to neuroscience. I know we're all neuro geeks now, but anyway, don't touch that dial in the meantime. 
Get online, get a copy of The Art of Risk. Uh, we'll be back right after these messages. I don't want to date anymore. What? Did you break up again? You said he's perfect. Well, I don't blame you. My last date lasted two minutes at a speed dating event. Are you still looking for the one? There are millions of singles looking for soulmates. Actually, drama-free love. Worry no more. Nine international relationship experts collaborated to bring you secrets to drama-free love. Proven solutions that singles use to help them find, catch, and keep the right relationship. Get your copy of Secrets to Drama-Free Love at Amazon.com now. We've ordered No, no More Love, love Life drama, drama for Us. Hi, everybody. I'm relationship expert and radio talk show host Marianne Camarado. And I'm David Raynaud. We want to talk to you for a minute about the changing world of dating and relationships and how self-inquiry can help. Honey, did you know that 44% of the U.S. population is single and over 50% end in divorce yet? We spend an average of one-third of our lives trying to find a great relationship or get help with the ones we already have. Yep, that's exactly why we created the first ever of its kind, the Great Relationships Begin Within Self-Inquiry Divination Deck, because we know what it takes to attract and create a healthy, fulfilling, sustainable relationship. And it's really simple. Sit quietly, close your eyes, turn your attention inward, and draw a card. You can go online right now and get a free reading on Marianne Light and try out the cards. And for under $20, what better way to give yourself a gift of your own attention? We wish you every blessing. We'll see you next time. Check out MarianneLive.com. Okay, so you have a couple of days off, and you're planning to get away from stress. You may be planning to go across the world or even taking a staycation around town. Well, Hotels.com can get you a room in over 158,000 hotels, 60 countries, for 50% off. That's reducing stress already. Plus, collect 10 nights, and you'll get one night free. And there's no cancellation charges, no change fees. For the best deals, even last-minute deals, visit HealthyLife.net's advertiser page and click on Hotels.com. Music, information, and friends. HealthyLife.net. Oh, my God, this is all so fascinating. How do we take risks and why? Well, joining us today, Kate Sukal has written a book for us, The Art of Risk Lays It All Out, folks. Understanding, characterizing, creating orientation, context, all everything you ever wanted to know, basically, about modern risk-taking and how it's situated right now in the brain is what we're talking about, the, the neuroscience behind risk-taking. And Before we went to the break, Kate, you were talking about the, the mechanisms in the brain. The, sure. Um, and I would love for you to tell the story about your son, if you don't yeah. mind, to, to illustrate this. It's just an adorable story. Well, so I'll tell a little bit about the, the you know, because I think my son does illustrate this, but basically, you know, you have, um, you know, these areas of the brain that work together. The, the fancy name is the mesocortical limbic circuit, but we have these really evolutionary preserved brains, that, uh, part of the brain, they call it the reptilian part of the brain, uh, the basal ganglia, and you can kind of think of this as the brain's motivation center. Some people call it the reward center, but it's basically, it motivates us to go out and get the best stuff in life. It wants us to go after money and food and sex and prestige and all the things that, that make life worth living. But of course, if 
we lived in a world where we went after all the things that we want immediately when we wanted them, the world would be a pretty inhospitable place. So we have these very highly developed uh, frontal lobes, and, you know, this is sort of the, the seat of judgment. It's there to say, if not no, at least not now. You know, sex is great, but maybe not with your boss's wife, and, you know, food is awesome, but you don't need chocolate cake. And, of course, these things develop over time, the frontal lobes, these, this sort of give and take between the motivation centers or what you might call the brain's gas pedal, and then the frontal lobes, the break. And the story about my son, he was about two. Um, We were at a cafe in Europe, and the tables are very close together, and he wanted some chocolate cake. And, of course, you know, I told him he needed to eat his dinner, and then maybe we'd talk about chocolate cake. And that was right as our neighbor, an elderly lady, had just gotten this big, lovely piece of chocolate cake. And I will tell you, at the time when I saw it, got the dime, I was thinking, oh, maybe I want some chocolate cake, too. But my son literally walked over there, put his hand in her cake, and shoved it in his mouth. I mean, that is, you know, the basal ganglia right there. He wanted cake, and he wanted now. And with a two-year-old, you know, it's kind of cute, and it's a funny story. But imagine if he had been 16 when he did that, or 35. Mm -hmm. And certainly there are plenty of people that do have a lot of impulse control, where the basal ganglia or these motivation centers are pushing them forward, and that gets them into trouble. That's not the kind of risk-taking that we're talking about. Yeah. or the kind of risk-taking that we want to do. That's the kind of risk-taking that ends us, you know, with jail, injury, yeah. and death, things yeah. I'd like to avoid for right for right yeah. now. So, yeah, cool. sorry, finish that thought. I had a quick question. So, you know, really good decision-making comes down to, uh, you know, a calculation. It's these two areas of the brain that are kind of duking it out. You hit the gas or hit the brakes. But then you also have parts of your brain involving memory, um, the limbic system, emotion, that are basically feeding in other, you know, pieces of data. That's where that brain, again, is filling uh, filling in those blanks that it doesn't know. Mm-hmm. So try to help you make a more optimal decision. Mm-hmm. So the frontal lobe uh, is involved with sort of creating priorities, we might say. Huh? And when that's not developed because it matures the latest or it's the last to mature uh, in mm-hmm. our development, um, this takes practice, right? It does take practice, and this is actually, you know, why teenagers are kind of the ultimate risk takers. You know, we like to, you know, talk about how teens are they're not thinking or, you know, maybe their brains are somehow defunct, but actually Mother Nature had something pretty special in mind when she designed the brain this way with lots of gas and not so much break. And it what it does is it gets them really motivated. It allows them to build these great skills to, this is, think about it, you know, adolescence is the time to become that great soccer player, to become, you know, an amazing student to kind of find yourself. But if you didn't have the kind of motivation that got you out there trying new things, and not only that, but you know, instead of falling down seven times and getting up eight, falling down 700 times and getting up 800, you wouldn't be able to grow and gain the experience you need to become a thoughtful capable, successful adult. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we talk about the frontal lobes a lot, like, you know, they're always there, but you need to learn stuff. You need to gain experience for them to, to do what they do well. And when you don't have that experience, and I think certainly we as adults, when we get thrown into new situations where we don't have the background and, and we don't know what's going on, we tend to make bad decisions, mm-hmm. um, you know, because we, we haven't, you know, strengthened the right connections in that way. Now, let's throw in just for fun, let's talk about the age thing, because I, I know that you do talk about this in the book, and I love it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before, you know, that some people will say, well, yeah, when you're older, you just stop taking risks. You, you say that's not the case here. So let's finish the continuum of this here, and then sure. I have another question. 
So, well, actually, a lot of studies seem to suggest that somewhere in our, you know, mid-40s to early 50s, we definitely slow down on the risks. Um, and, you know, there, we like to tell ourselves it's because we have experience, we know better, there's too much to lose, but really it's our brains are getting into habits. The brain likes habits. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, what's fascinating to me is it does not have to be that way. A lot of the researchers said, you know, a lot of our study participants, if they were willing to take more risks, if they were willing to just, you know, push the envelope a little bit more, they'd be a lot more successful. Mm-hmm. And then you add to that this really fascinating thing that, you know, all of these studies of successful aging, people who are leading higher quality, happier lives, you know, well into their 70s and 80s, uh, they tend to have more sex. They, you know, the things we don't want to hear is they also eat right and exercise. And some of us want to say, well, I don't want to exercise. <laughs> but they also tend to embrace novelty. They're doing new things. They're taking risks. Mm-hmm. And while there's always a chicken and egg problem with some of these successful aging studies because you don't know, are they doing these things because they feel better or does doing these things make them feel better? Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard to know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's... It, there's, there's no lose. You know, taking a few risks or pushing yourself out of your comfort zone every once in a while is a boon, and if nothing else, it's going to give you some great stories to tell at the nursing home. For sure, for sure, and everywhere else. Anywhere else where you're not in a nursing home. There's right. a lot of people hauling around listening to this program in Europe who are like, we don't do nursing homes. A lot of people in the United States, yeah, but a lot of the other countries that are listening are like, yeah, no, my parents live with me. Right. Or, or they still live in their own home in Italy and, and Spain and, you know, all that, those places, wherever you're listening. We know this is true. We see a lot of folks uh, hauling around all the way up until, you know, my uncle just started, he just stopped driving. He's 98. Okay, we, we all wanted him to stop at 90, but, you know, he, he was definitely a risk for the rest of us. <laughs> all right, that said, we're going to talk a little bit about DNA and the kind of person that is more prone. You know, we talked about the gender differences, but we're going to talk about DNA in a second. But before we do, uh, let's talk about the cultural climate. I know I keep looping back to this, but how is that affecting us? This blanket of fear and terror, particularly, well, it's pretty much global now. How does this affect us uh, and the brain? Uh, if I know you didn't really get into it in the book so much, but I'm, I'm fascinated by this. Well, I think, you know, what I do get into the book is how emotion can change it, and certainly stress and emotion. And what we find, you know, again, we like to think of ourselves as rational, but we find that if we are very emotional, it changes the way that we sort of calculate out the variables. And one way that studies have shown this is, you know, is it, it really basically kind of erases the odds. So I talk about a lottery example in the book. So, you know, when the Powerball gets up over 300, well, I won't even say 300 million now because now we've had 500 million and people don't want to go back. But, you know, everybody wants to buy a ticket. And all of a sudden they're talking about quitting their job and buying a Lamborghini and leading this, this you know, luxurious life. Um, but you can go onto the Powerball website and you can see what the odds are. And it's like one in 300 million. It is ridiculous. But you start talking about it. You start thinking about how it would feel to tell your boss to, you know, go shove it and how it would feel to, like, put your kids through Harvard or finally buy your dream home or have, you know, this sense of stability. And that happiness really sort of changes. And now all of a sudden you're not thinking about there's a 1 in 300 million chance. You're starting to think there's some chance. And that makes a really profound difference in how you calculate the odds and how you decide. Because there's a chance. It's not, oh, my gosh, it's so infinitely small. It's, I'm never going to get there. There's no point. I'm better off putting my $2 in a, you know, 
IRA or whatever, all you're thinking about are those good thoughts, some chance. Now, when we're talking about the world climate, you know, in terms of traveling um, uh, and the politics or whatever else, you know, fear and anger work in very similar ways. So, you know, when I, I, I guess I should put out there right away, not a Donald Trump supporter, um, but I see this with a lot of, you know, so many of, of the things that he says and, and what's happening at his rallies is he really uses both fear and anger to motivate people. So kind of like that lottery ticket, instead of seeing the one in 300 million odds or the some odds, you know, the, they're being convinced through, through fear and sort of these heightened negative emotions that if Donald Trump gets elected, you know, their kind of factory jobs are going to come back, or this is going to come back. All of a sudden, you know, there's that small chance. Mm -hmm. And they're not thinking about, you know, the bigger picture and the other variables. They're not weighting the calculation right. Right. All of a sudden it just becomes there's some chance he can bring back the way things were. And, you know, I think this is so important to understand how emotion, you know, and how the brain uses those feelings to, to fill in the blanks. And, again, if you go back to kind of like the evolutionary biology, you know, our emotional systems, the way they were designed, again, think about us being hunter-gatherers, you know, out in the forest. The predator comes upon us. We need that stress right then to survive. You know, when we're fighting in anger, you know, back in the we might have been fighting for the death for, for a mate or a food source or whatever else. We needed those emotions. Those kind of heightened emotions don't really, um, we, we don't quite need them as much when we're living in this sort of society. It's very civilized. We, you know, live in, in our, our homes. You there? I don't know. We lost Kate Sattel. All right, everybody, sit tight. Don't worry about it. Maybe her basal ganglia got the best of her for a minute. She'll be back online with us in just a minute. Not to worry. I think we're going to break anyway. Uh, when we get back, more with Kate Sattel. We're going to talk about, uh, among other things, our DNA and how that affects the way that we uh, take risks and who is affected more. Uh, we'll get into the gender story a little bit, uh, and then we're going to talk about type A's, addiction, and other really great stuff and how to become superb risk takers when we get back right after these messages back in just a minute. I don't want to date anymore. What? Did you break up again? You said he's perfect. Well, I don't blame you. My last date lasted two minutes at a speed dating event. Are you still looking for the one? There are millions of singles looking for soulmates. Actually, drama-free love. Worry no more. Nine international relationship experts collaborated to bring you secrets to drama-free love. Proven solutions that singles use to help them find, catch, and keep the right relationship. Get your copy of Secrets to Drama-Free Love at Amazon.com now. We've ordered No More Love Life Drama for Us. Shh. Over here. Here's a secret for a virus-free computer. ESET. They've been a pioneer in the antivirus industry for over 25 years. 25 years of innovative, top-rated antivirus protection. ESET's award-winning security solutions provide a safe online experience for over 100 million home and business computer owners. They are so affordable, fast, and simple to use. So be gone, you blue screen of death. ESET's on my computer. If it's not on yours, visit HealthyLife.net's advertiser page and click on ESET now. 
Did you know that in seven minutes you might save $522 on car insurance? Well, this makes sense, since 21st Century Insurance's company's website has been rated number one in responsiveness by Keynote. Serving customers since 1958, 21st Century Insurance has a 24-7 online policy and claim service. You can get a quote fast and easy, so get your quote by visiting HealthyLife.net's advertiser page and click right on the 21st Century Insurance banner. More exhilarating talk, HealthyLife.net. Everybody, you're breathing in and out. Yeah, we lost Kay for just a second. Not to worry. She's right here. She's back. Yep, she's up. <laughs> hey, Kate, okay, so let's finish up our thoughts about the emotional aspect of risk-taking. Any last thoughts for us? Well, I think it just comes down to, you know, powerful emotions can totally rock the brain's ecosystem. And you need to understand that, especially if you're making decisions when you're very upset or actually even when you're too happy, you know, it, it really just changes the way that your brain makes this calculation. So understanding how it fills in the blank, I think, is really a benefit to good decision-making. Yeah, you've got some great examples in the book um, to help us uh, establish some of those baseline um, risk, uh, what did you call it here, the way we can, uh, the, the lessons a risk-taker needs to learn on right. page 251. You can make a note of that if folks want to get to that right away. Uh, and some other great tips towards the end of the book that I loved. Uh, in the meantime, let's talk a little bit about the DNA aspect. Sure. This is fascinating. Uh, we, we approached it by, you know, it's, are some people born uh, risk takers more than others, et cetera, and then there's the gender issue. But you, you covered a lot of territory here. Well, and certainly there's been a lot of work looking at trying to pinpoint genes that, you know, give us uh, intelligence, uh, risk-taking, uh, even height. Uh, but, of course, you know, there was this inherent promise when, you know, Crick and Watson came up with DNA that we were going to kind of understand, you know, the human blueprint, what makes us who we are. And what we found out is we have a whole lot of DNA that codes for, chemical, you know, proteins that work together in all these weird and wild ways. So in some ways we're, we're, we are learning about it, but that sort of height gene or, you know, like loud mouth gene or what have you, that hasn't quite come to fruition. Yeah. Well, I love the part of the book where you actually had them test your genes. Yes. DRD4 and then your 4R, 5R. Tell us yes. about this. This is fascinating. So there's, there have been a series of genes that have been implicated in people being more impulsive and taking more risks. And they are linked to chemicals that sort of run the frontal lobes. So one of these is DRD4. It's a dopamine receptor gene. I was telling you about that circuit for decision-making before. It kind of runs on dopamine. It's a learning chemical. Some people call it a pleasure chemical, but it's really a learning chemical. Um, and so when you have this certain variant of receptors, you have, like, a, a different landscape of receptors in different areas of the brain. And what researchers have found is if you have this particular variant, you are more likely to engage in promiscuous sex and one-night stands. You're more likely to uh, bet big in a lottery or in a poker game. Uh, you're more likely to travel. You're more likely to do a lot of, you know, what are considered riskier behaviors. You're even more likely to have bigger bids in bridge, which I think is funny. Who decided they wanted to study bridge? <laughs> love um, it. But, you know, a lot of baby boomers play bridge. Oh, and they love it. They get into it. They get competitive. That's right. Um, so, you know, when you have this, it, it's somewhat predictive. Um, and it was funny because when I was meeting with these risk researchers, they were all convinced that I would have this um, particular variant because of, of my background. I'd always been a risk taker. And everyone, time and time again, kept saying, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, you have, you're definitely, 
I don't have this particular gene variant. <laughs> I am a run-of-the-mill, boring old non-risk taker gene variant. But I think it's kind of an important thing to say because, you know, behavior, especially anything as complex as risk-taking, it's not going to be a single gene. But all of these different genes that scientists are looking at, they make a small contribution. And that contribution changes the way sort of your baseline algorithm for assessing and then acting upon risk. And so even though it may be one little gene and one little change, over a lifetime that means very different lives lived, lots of different kinds of decisions made, lots of different justifications. And so, you know, the question, are, are risk takers born or not made? You know, the answer is it kind of depends. I think there are definitely some of us that are more naturally impulsive. We're more likely to fly by the seat of our pants. Some of us are more anxious. We hold back. We need a push sometimes from, from the people around us to take a risk. Um, but what we're learning is that all of these genes can make some pretty, you know, subtle but profound changes on the way that we calculate things out. Yeah, neuroplasticity, epigenetics, I mean, you're yeah. covering all the bases here, and it's a, it's a soup. Every person's a soup. So let's talk about this then. Here's a bazillion-dollar question for me. What do you think about fate and things like synchronicity, Ms. Scientist? You know, how does that play in here? You know, so as a scientist, and, and, you know, this may seem like a cop-out, I think what's fascinating is how people who do believe in fate and do, you know, how that can, can change things. Belief is such a powerful, you know, the same way that, um, it, 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 you know, emotion can kind of rock the ecosystem, what you see is that beliefs do, too. And if you look at something just as simple as the placebo effect, you know, people who really believe a, a treatment, an action that will be better, even when they're not getting anything at all, they get better. It's really powerful. Positive thinking is really powerful. Um, you know, and I, it, it sometimes it's hard for me because I'm kind of a natural-born skeptic, and that's, you know, just I'm a misanthrope and, and what have you. But there's, I, I can't deny that, that people who, you know, we're, as human beings in terms of synchronicity, we seek out connection. There is a drive to connect with other humans, to form our little social groups, our own little weird islands of misfit, you know, uh, friends or, or what have you. So those connections and that synchronicity, if we put stock in it, then there's, it has value. Yeah, and, and what, but if we took it to the next level, just for fun here, and we think about, you know, Carl Jung or even, you know, uh, some of the greats, you know, Emanuel Swedenborg and... Kierkegaard and all these guys on their deathbed said, you know, if I had my life to live over, I would have studied this one area entirely. Because if we are all connected and there is this grid, right, that, 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 that what happens in the relationship with the rest of the world, you know, I think we've gotten so uh, egocentric or, or self-centric that we forget that there's whole, this whole other universe of energy that most of us don't take into consideration. That's a different book, I know. I'm getting off, I'm well, getting off track here, but it is seems relevant in some way. I think it's also relevant in that we live in a very different way. So maybe the things that, you know, we're seeking, because here's the interesting thing about the risk-taking circuit. It's also a love and attachment circuit. And you can always say that, hey, you know, what greater risk or reward is there than, you know, love and connect, truly connecting with another person? 
But now we lead these lives where, you know, we're, we're connected to technology more than other people. Our families, instead of sort of being in sprawling compounds, you know, there's two of you in a six-bedroom house, and you never talk to your neighbors. You never connect in. You know, maybe, you know, in terms of a, a landscape, we take more physical risks because we're missing something, you know, that we might have been getting from an emotional connection before. And, you know, these are all big questions, and yeah. it's more speculation than anything else. But, you know, I think it's fascinating that the brain has this overlap. Yeah, I love it. When we get back, we're going to talk about hormones. I'm sorry, I have to I have to do the, revisit the gender story. Who's more likely to take a risk? And, you know, gender today, you could be, oh, my God, we're getting into a whole rat's nest here. <laughs> when we get back, right after these messages, we'll do it right here with Kate Sakel. The Art of Risk. I'm Marianne Live. Back in just a minute. I don't want to date anymore. What? Did you break up again? You said he's perfect. Well, I don't blame you. My last date lasted two minutes at a speed dating event. Are you still looking for the one? There are millions of singles looking for soulmates. Actually, drama-free love. Worry no more. Nine international relationship experts collaborated to bring you secrets to drama-free love. Proven solutions that singles use to help them find, catch, and keep the right relationship. Get your copy of Secrets to Drama-Free Love at Amazon.com now. We've We've ordered ordered No No More More Love Love Life Life Drama Drama for Us. MarianneLive.com is where you can go to keep up to date with what and where relationship expert, author, and radio host Marianne Camarado is appearing next. Besides Marianne's three radio shows weekdays on HealthyLife.net, you can find out details about upcoming or ongoing seminars and workshops. How about information for ordering copies of books or DVDs? That's also available at MarianneLive.com. Find out about core certification, certificate of responsible relationships www.marianlife.com Core Certification Learning Tools to Attract, Build, and Sustain Great Relationships Also sign up for Marianne's newsletter to be informed about upcoming events and possible workshops or speaking engagements in the Northern California area www.marianlive.com What does HealthyLife.net and Amazon.com have in common? Well, they're both available on the Internet. They both give great value. But most important, most of our positive program hosts and guests are accomplished authors. And their books are available from, you got it, Amazon.com. Now it even gets better than that. Because when you're listening on air to a HealthyLife.net host or guest, you can go directly to Amazon.com and you can order your book while you're still listening to your favorite HealthyLife.net program. So when you hear an author you like, go to the homepage of HealthyLife.net and click on Amazon.com. HealthyLife.net. The Positive Radio Network. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Marianne Live. Okay, we're at it. We're at the male-female debate. Yep, we're talking gender and risk. Okay, Kate Sattel, what what's the deal with that? Are men or women more risk-averse? And let's talk about that in the context of this big gender debate that's global, and rightly so. Let, let's talk about this. Well, you know, I think what's interesting, like I said before, there's always been this idea that men are naturally more risk-taker, uh, risk-taking than women and that there's something about their, uh, you know, reproductive drives that, that makes them so. They are more likely to put on a show, to, you know, the same way that, that rams lock horns to fight over a mate. You know, males will take risks to get the attentions of a female, et cetera. But, again, we have all this societally transmitted information, 
that doesn't necessarily always mix well with the biology or at least the biology as it's changing, as society is changing. And so, you know, one of the things that researchers initially looked at for, for risk-taking behavior was testosterone because what are manly men made of testosterone, right? Um, so they took measures, and, and sure enough, they did find that men who had higher testosterone um, tended to be more impulsive and take more risks. Yet, here's the thing, you know, estrogen and testosterone are actually very closely related. And, um, you know, with an enzyme called aromatase, um, they actually switch into each other in the body. So it's not like women don't have testosterone. Yeah. And, in fact, when later studies looked at women, they found the same thing. Women with higher testosterone profiles tended to take more risks. And so I think that's interesting because what that tells us is that there's a continuum. Um, and when we certainly these days when we look at neurobiological research, there are two things that t- tend to come up. We think of men and women as being so different in the way they think and the way they act and the way they feel. Um, but a lot of research suggests, no, maybe not, not so much. In fact, one of the prevailing theories that I really like is something called um, compensation, sexual compensation, because certainly, um, you know, our brains need to develop differently in adolescence so that we can reproduce. It, it takes a little bit different brain regions and muscles and what have you to work a penis than it does to, to work, uh, you know, a, a vagina. But beyond those differences, what if instead of the differences that we see in the brain are there for different behavior, thoughts, and emotions, what if the differences are there to compensate, to bring everybody back to the mean? And I think that's really fascinating, and we sort of, as opportunities arise, see more and more of that, because women certainly can operate, you know, and 100 years ago, when women were trying to get into medical school, there were all these arguments, oh, you know, their periods are going to mess them up, they're too emotional, they'll cry, they'll faint at the sight of blood, and now some of the top in the country are women. Um, you see the same thing, at, you know, women running companies. They can be just as, uh, you know, brilliant and cutthroat. And, in fact, a lot of studies suggest that having a, you know, C-level suite with women in it means that you're going to be more successful. Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, I think with risk-taking, it's going to be something really interesting to continue to study. Um, but I think if, if we go in with a bias that men are naturally more risk-taking, you're, you're te- kind of cutting yourself off at the legs. But I also think, you know, so often we equate impulsive behavior with risk-taking, smart risk-taking behavior, and impulsive is not smart risk-taking. Impulsive is fly by the seat of your pants, don't do your homework, and uh, much more likely to fall on your face. And what if, you know, the male advantage was actually that impul- an advantage I use in quotes, is that impulsivity yeah. versus, you know, sort of a smarter, more thoughtful risk-taking I like approach. It. I like it. Jury's still out, people. Don't be so quick to judge. We all have both, it sounds like. And... Uh, and there's a lot of things, a lot of factors involved here. Let's talk a little bit as we come up to the top of the hour then about type A, uh, people and addiction really fast. Uh, we didn't cover this. It's, you talk about it in the book, but I think it's important. And because then we're going to turn to what can we do about it, no matter where we fall on the spectrum, as you say. Right. Uh, how do we become good risk takers? Well, so a lot of, you know, where substance abuse comes in is, you know, again, it comes to that negative risk taking. And I think this is really important. People who tend to be, more impulsive, who tend to fly by the seat of their pants, they, they tend to be those that, that abuse substances more often. But they don't tend to be the same people that end up running, you know, successful companies or being successful extreme sports. You know, you don't really want to be high when you're throwing yourself off the top of, of a cliff with just a parachute. Um, so, you know, I think it's important that our definitions sort of become a lot more specific and, and really refined. 
Because impulsive behavior is not the same as successful risk-taking. Beautiful. All right. So tell us how we can be successful risk-takers. One, two, three. You've got it spelled out in the book longhand. Right. What do we What do we want to leave folks with? I think that? the first you got to know who you are and what kind of baseline risk-taker you are. Some of us are always going for the gusto. We're always hitting the gas really hard, and we need to sort of take a step back and tell our frontal lobes, wait, wait, wait. Is this a good idea or not? Mm-hmm. But then others of us, the opposite is true. We're, we're talking ourselves out of great opportunities all of the time because we're really just inflating the possibility of negative consequences. So I think knowing who you are and how you naturally approach risk is really important because it, it gives you an idea of when you need to take a step back and say, wait a minute, why am I saying yes? Why am I saying no? Is this really a good idea? Right. And two? The second thing is knowing about how the environmental variables can change things up. You may not be able to change your your gender, your age, your natural proclivities to risk-taking, but is there something in the environment happening that may be altering that calculation? Are you really emotional? Are you really stressed out? Are the people around you telling you to do something that you're not comfortable with, and is that pushing you in another direction? So that combination is important. So so knowing what you can change. But the last part is just, you know, so often we do, even even the more impulsive of us talk ourselves out of really great opportunities because we're afraid, because we're not mindful of what we're capable of. And so I think the last step is just to be really aware and, and you know, take the plunge, try, um, you know, gain those skills um, from, from, you know, not sometimes you're going to fail, but fail forward so you learn and, and can move on and really you know, get towards your long-term goals. All right, Kate, what's your next big risk? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I'm trying writing fiction, um, but, uh, you know, I'm a parent, so trying to right now to raise my kids to be thoughtful, capable adults, that that seems like a risk all on its own. <laughs> well, we're so glad you risked coming to be with us here at Marianne Live. It was a calculated risk. You probably knew we were going to love you, but we're glad you came. We're so grateful you did. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, come back and tell us about whatever else you're going to be doing, uh, aside from raising your child and uh, the other gorgeous risks you might take. Please join us again on Mary and Live, will you? I would love to. Thank you. All right, everybody, sit tight. We're going to be right back for our wrap right here on Mary and Live. Get a hold of Kate in the meantime. You can do that pretty easily. Um, I am looking for her website address, and it's katesukel.com, K-A-Y-T-S-U-K-E-L.com for more information. You can always go to marionlaw.com as well. Back in just a minute for our wrap. Everybody. I'm relationship expert and radio talk show host Marianne Camarado. And I'm David Raynaud. We want to talk to you for a minute about the changing world of dating and relationships and how self-inquiry can help. Honey, did you know that 44% of the U.S. population is single and over 50% end in divorce? Yet, we spend an average of one-third of our lives trying to find a great relationship or get help with the ones we already have. Yep, that's exactly why we created the first ever of its kind, the Great Relationships Begin Within, Self-Inquiry divination deck because we know what it takes to attract and create a healthy, fulfilling, sustainable relationship. And it's really simple. 
sit quietly, close your eyes, turn your attention inward, and draw a card. You can go online right now and get a free reading on Marianne Lide and try out the cards. And for under $20, what better way to give yourself a gift of your own attention? We wish you every blessing. We'll see you next time. Check out MarianneLive.com. To be a good father is the most important job in a man's life. But it doesn't have to be hard. Play catch. Go to a park or visit a zoo. Help your child with their homework. Sit down together for dinner. Ask them how their day was. Things get busy, and sometimes we all fall short. But the smallest moments can have the biggest impact on a child's life. Take time to be a dad today. Learn more at one 877 dad or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Stuff, stuff, stuff. Where can I contain all of my stuff? Hmm, how about this? The Container Store, the original storage and organization store. And I found their link on the HealthyLife.net advertiser page. They have containers for everything, including the kitchen, the bathroom, trash and recycling, traveling, spring cleaning, and dorm rooms. Just about everything you can think of to contain your stuff. The Container Store, right on the HealthyLife.net advertiser page. HealthyLife.net, where positive overcomes negative. Okay, Kate Sukal. Yes, superstar Kate Sukal was with us today. The Art of Risk, the New Science of Courage, Caution, and Chance. Take a risk. Join us next week. Same time, same place, Sandra Easter, Ph.D. She's going to be with us. She's going to be talking to us about her new book, The Young and the Ancestors. Don't want to miss that show, particularly all you young fans. Come on. I know you're out there. Join us next week. In the meantime, third party of practice, go do something for somebody else. Don't let them know you did it. Have a beautiful day, and I wish you every blessing. Until we see you next time, go to Marianne Live for more information about what we've got going on, workshops, products, other um, podcasts, etc., just for you. See you next time.